the exciting, dangerous world of James Bond has arrived in Los Angeles. The Peterson Automotive Museum invites you to experience the cinematic legacy of over 30 iconic vehicles of James Bond in the new exhibition, Bond in Motion. This new Bond exhibition features the largest official collection of 007 vehicles in the United States, including the 1977 Lotus Esprit S1 submarine and No Time to Die Aston Martin DB5. Plan your visit today at peterson.org backslash bond. That's P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N dot org backslash bond. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 648. On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast returns. This is Rating the Bonds, rating all aspects of the James Bond films. I am your host, Van Allen Plexico. We are back, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. It's great to be back. And as it's been a while... How do you feel about me? I love you. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> well played. Well played. Very good. Yes, yes. Um, see, I could have done you like James did Money Penny and go, I've got it. Don't worry. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> whatever he said to her. Yeah, that's great. That, that, the, the, that's the password for tonight's show is I love you. So... Uh, Alan, we've we had a couple of months off for various reasons. I've been working on some huge projects. You had some various trips and everything. And so between the two of us, it's been hard to get together. But we're back just in time to do... I, I can't remember. It's been a while. We know this is one of my favorites. I can't remember where you kind of rank it. Uh, it's a top 10 for me. I think it's about number seven or eight on my list. Um, but I think that's more for nostalgia purposes. I think I mentioned this when we did it first time around, but when I was at high school, we my last two years at high school, we set up a movie club. I'm really going to date myself here. And the only um, 16 millimeter film canisters we could get was two movies. There was uh, Charles Bronson's Western Cato's Land. Hmm. And You Only Live Twice was the other one. So for about six months, every Friday... <laughs> we watched Kato's Land and You Only Live Twice. Wow. Um, so it's very ingrained in my psyche and my memories. Um, so I think that's why it's up there. But I will also say it's my comfort movie. Um, there's a few times when I've had like a tough day at work or something's been going on and I just say to Jill, I just want to watch James Bond blow up shit. And if I, <laughs> this is the movie we put on. It is. So, it it, it yeah. certainly is. All right, well, well, two things. One is... That corresponds to me turning on ABC Sunday Night at the Movies in the early 70s and seeing either this movie or Diamonds Are Forever or Live and Let Die. It was always one of those three on the Sunday right. Night at the Movies. Like every freaking Sunday on ABC, it was one of those three movies. And I saw all of those before I saw any of the others over and over and over. And And I agree with you about the nostalgia thing too because every time I watch this movie, there's a part of me that says, this just makes no sense at all. What in the world? And the other part of me says, shut up. We're trying to enjoy this <laughs> awesome movie here. Be quiet. So if you, if you, I'm going to say this again later in a different context, but if you, if you evaluate this movie like it came out this year, you'd cut it to pieces. But it, 
didn't come out this year, and I evaluate it on a completely different way, in a completely different way, right? So Yeah, that's fair enough. So what uh, for those of you just joining us for the first time, and it has been a couple of months, so maybe you are, what uh, Alan and I have have already reviewed all the Bond films in our earlier series uh, that is on this same podcast channel. But we've we're going back now and working our way through them again. And this time, based around categories and ranking scales of 1 to 10. So we look at how the villains rank, how the vehicles and the gadgets rank, the girls, the music, what's aged the best and worst, and and so on like that. So this is not going to be a full review of the movie. We've already done that. You can just scroll back in your podcast feed. This is going to be a different approach where we are sort of being analytical from beginning to end and, and that sort of thing. So... So tonight we are looking at You Only Live Twice from 1967. And I guess uh, it was Michael Beggar, one of our listeners, who suggested that we talk about a few things that are going on in the world around the same time that our movie came out each time. So what was going on around the time this movie came out, Alan? So from a UK perspective, um, this is somewhat ironic, but actually 1967 is the year that the Britain opened negotiations to join the EU. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, what goes around comes around, huh? So, I don't know what the opposite of Brexit is. It's a um, Brentry. Brentry. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was started in 67, was the conversations around that. The other one I found out, which I was not aware of, which I thought was interesting in light of the movie, 1967 is the year that the UK, the US, and Soviet Union signed the Outer Space Treaty. Perfect. That's. So, I mean, not only is it about outer space and presumably human vehicles in outer space, but it's the three countries that are involved at the beginning of this movie. Right, and that's always one of the complaints I see: is why is the UK there? With why is it only those three? And what does the UK have to do with an argument between Russia and America yeah. over space? And the point is, that was the, there was an actual treaty. It really I was. I did not know that. Well, <laughs> you know, it's yes, factually accurate. It is accurate. So, and that, that struck me, too, because I kept thinking how these early, the 60s bonds, Dr. No and You Only Live Twice in particular, involve space travel and rockets. Not to the degree, yeah. obviously, of Moonraker, but they, they very much are about it was the age of, of, of Mercury and Gemini and, yeah. and Apollo and everything. And it was very much incorporating those into the story. Yeah, but the fact there was an actual treaty between those three countries on that exact topic was just, I was like, oh, okay. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I know, I saw that too, and I'm like, whoa. Um, because I've always thought that the reason, there were two reasons that the British uh, representatives were kind of interposing themselves in that in that argument. One is obviously because you, you've got to get the British involved to get Bond involved. <laughs> you've got to get James Bond in right. this. Yeah. He's got to be involved, yeah. sure. And, and two... Because, you know, if you watch it, the American is not hot-headed, but he's very like, we're going to do so-and-so, you know. We're, we've already made up our minds. We're not put up with this. And the Russian is like, we will not take this aggression, you know. And the British is like, gentlemen, please. You know? <laughs> he comes in like, influence. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. The, he's the calm gentleman with the, you know, the aristocratic manner coming in in between these two ruffians. And I, I always think it's so funny how... I do like the idea that Britain kind of, with the James Bond movies in general, and, and in this scene in particular, Britain kind of positions itself as, we may not be a superpower, but our superpower 
is to is to be so cool and to rise above you guys that you'll respect us and listen to us even if we're not you know you know yeah. a, a superpower. So I, I love that. I love that about the Bond movies that they don't have to be. Britain doesn't have to be an equal to the U.S. and the Soviet in the Cold War because either with just their culture, their education, and James Bond. They get there anyway, you know. They make up for it in other ways, and I really appreciate that about those movies. How they, how they play that. You know? Yeah, me too. Me too. So it's it's one of the things that makes Bond special, and it wouldn't be the same if if he were from any other country. I've always thought. Um, a few things that I wanted to note about the what was happening. I got a fly in here. <laughs> this is crazy. It's like the helicopters around the volcano base. They go away. <laughs> Um, I think it's Little Nelly, actually. I'm going to name this fly Little Nelly. Um, so this novel takes, I mean, uh, this movie takes place the year the novel you and I are about to write uh, takes place in, too, which is kind of cool, 1967. 67, cool, yeah. yeah. Doing a lot of uh, research about 1967s. So. Yeah, there we go. Uh, the first Super Bowl was played this year. Uh, Ronald Reagan was inaugurated governor of California. Thing, I, I, he might have gone on to do other things. The, the, speaking of the space program, the Apollo 1 fire was this year. When the three astronauts oh, yeah. were killed on the launch pad, mm. so there was a lot going on with the uh, with the space program. Elvis Presley got married to Priscilla. Uh, the Six Day War, which I'm surprised they've never really they've never done a lot with the Arab Israeli conflict. They've touched just no. briefly touched on it. But they've never done much with that. Uh, just other few things really quickly. Jane Mansfield dies that year in the car crash. Uh, the United Kingdom closed its military bases in Malaysia and Singapore. Yeah. Despite the disapproval of Australia and the United States, interestingly, uh, the first albums came out from The Doors and Jimi Hendrix. Wow. John McCain was shot down over Vietnam. Interestingly, that's certainly in the news uh, for the next 50 years. The first issue of Rolling Stone, uh, PBS began. Lyndon Johnson created the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Uh, this is one I thought you'd get. The Magical Mystery Tour is released by the Beatles. Well, you missed the biggest thing in, in rock music. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Club, Hearts Club Band was 67. Was it? Okay, I didn't know that. And uh, The Summer of Love in San Francisco. Uh, the Big Mac was introduced. <laughs> and it's still repeating. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, at the end of that year, we were less than two weeks away from my debut on Earth. <laughs> the most important thing. Most important yeah. thing. Yep. Right. I, okay, I, so I'm going to... I came along right about the same time as the uh, Tet Offensive, and um, yeah, I think the Tet Offensive was the main thing in Vietnam. Yeah. All right. So that's that's what I had. Okay. I got a couple of others. So in the UK, so the first color TV broadcast in the UK was oh, wow. 1960, was Wimbledon that year, was oh, the first okay. color TV broadcast. Um, the first cash dispenser machine, or ATM as they're called <laughs> over here, was installed in a branch of Barclays Bank in London. So they've been around yeah. quite a while. Uh, but the first ones, first ones were actually you had paper vouchers that were like checks, and you put it in the machine, and it read the voucher, and then gave you the cash. Okay. Because uh, I remember my dad having those, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, and of course, in the James Bond world, there was another significant release in 1967. Oh, uh, we shan't speak of that. <laughs> of course, it was uh, the same year as uh, Casino Royale '67, the most uh, faith, uh, the most faithful. Fleming adaptation of the year, Casino oh. Royale 67. So. Well, okay, that's fair. <laughs> compared to this, compared to the movie we're speaking of tonight, it probably was, but still, that's not saying a whole lot. 
<laughs> neither one of them had very much to do with what they were about. So, all right. Now, I'll just tell our listeners if, if you don't know, Alan and I did review the 1967 Casino Royale, and all I can assume is that they were doing some really serious drugs in the 60s because <laughs> that thing just made no sense to me at all. It looked like they were having a good time. I'll put it that way. I think most of them were, yeah. Yeah. In the 80s, it was all cocaine. I don't know what they were on in the 60s when they made that movie, though. <laughs> uh, every, I've always said every movie that came out in the 80s should have had an executive producing uh, credit to cocaine because it was pretty much <laughs> responsible for most everything that came out. All right. So let's look at You Only Live Twice. Um, so first up, we talk about the plot and the story. You're going to give me a number between 1 and 10 for how you rank or how you rate the plot and the story of this movie, and then tell us a little bit about why. Okay, so if you remember back, I usually, I usually do this from 2 one, one We just talked about it. How close is it to the Ian Fleming source right. material? And then two, is it plausible? So the Fleming <laughs> adaptation, well, it takes place in Japan. Yeah. Um, yeah. It has characters named James Bond, Tiger <laughs> Tanaka, Henderson, and Blofeld. <laughs> and that's about it, really. That's about it. That's about it. So, um, yeah, it gets a one yeah. uh, for... Um, though I did actually um, find out when I was doing the research for doing this, there was a very early script, uh, one of the first scripts before Roald Dahl was brought on as a screenwriter, one of the earlier um, people they, they asked to do it, actually did a reasonably close adaptation to the novel. Um, and one of the reasons that they, I'm sort of going ahead here, but one of the reasons they ended up with a volcano as the layer, because in the novel, Blofeld's place was a castle on the shore. And the early scripts actually had the action taking place in a castle on the coastline in Japan. Mm. The only problem with that is Ian Fleming didn't do his research. There are no castles on the coastline in Japan. Um, so they were location scouting and couldn't actually find a castle, but they flew over the volcanoes and decided to switch it to the volcano and, set. So, and from there, it became history. From yeah. there, it became um, epical, iconic. <laughs> iconic. So... Uh, Fleming adaptation probably gets a one. Uh, plausibility, I don't know, you just mentioned it earlier. If you think about it, this plot makes no sense. No. Things happen ju Things happen just because it's a James Bond movie rather than motivated by any sort of logic. No. Um, it's probably also... You actually said about not being as spacey as Moonraker. When I was re-watching it the other night, I started thinking about that. And I actually think this is actually more spacey than Moonraker. It's got more space action in it. Than Moonraker, hmm. and again Bond intends to go up to space, but he doesn't get there. But the only That's difference true. is that you know you you've got you know three four different spacecraft. You've got a lot more stuff of what's going on in ground control and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I think it's as spacey or even slightly more. I think this is the most more outlandish science fiction Bond because Moonraker's got some basis in reality with the shuttle. Yeah, this one this one. <laughs> There's no reality to right. the Spectre spaceship at all. No. So uh, I, I think this is the more outlandish science fiction bonds. Um, and also the script itself, if you start watching the movie, and we probably will get to this, that it's just so full of internal contradictions within the script itself. Um, oh, yeah. So, so I gave that a three. So overall, it was a four out of ten for me for the for the for the plot and story. And you, you're keeping track of our numbers, right? So you can edit it. Yes, I have my magic spreadsheet, which you are not going to alter this time around. I've made my mind up. <laughs> That's 
No, I agree with you, and I think that if Bond had been able to go up in this uh, in the spaceship in this movie, it would have blunted some of the criticism of Moonraker because people act like Moonraker is just so ridiculous that Bond goes up in a spaceship that actually existed then. And yeah. I'm like, in this movie, he almost went up in one that didn't exist at all. So give me a break. So I, I and still doesn't exist. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll. Well, it, you know, you know what? The spe- Actually, no. Elon Musk is close. That's to exactly it. what I was going to say. Is the Spectre rocket in '67 the thing it is most like? Is Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX craft? That is exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um. All right. I gave. So, oh, go I was, on. sorry. Come on. I was going to say, what what score did you give it then? Yeah, I I gave the plot story of this one a seven because while as a whole it doesn't make any sense at all, the individual pieces are so good. That's what I've always liked about this movie is obviously when you try to follow it from A to Z, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. But if you just look at A, B, C, kind of in a capsule, oh, that's awesome. If you just look at D, E, F, that's awesome, right? It has so many great, iconic, individual pieces that that kind of overcomes for me the overall problem. So, seven. Now, I had a couple of questions. I don't know if we remarked about this in our original review. Did we talk about the fact that the gun barrel circle turns into the Japanese flag momentarily at the beginning? No, we didn't, and I never noticed that. It does! It goes from white to the red circle in the middle of the screen momentarily. Oh. Yeah. Ah, that's cool. Ah, all right. And um, I guess that's the only thing I had. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, you're never going to get, I'm never going to argue that the movie makes sense. And, there, and there's so many things. And, like, just as one example, like the whole thing where Aki shows up to rescue him when she shouldn't even know he needed rescuing. And, but then tricks him and looks like she's a villain, but then tricks him into going to see her boss. It, none of that makes the least bit of sense at all, right? I mean, it's just so no. it's so strange. Yeah. So, so do we want to do our unanswered questions then? Yes. So that was my first unanswered question, is why does Aki trick Bond into going to some place that Bond wanted to go? I, that mm-hmm. doesn't... I, just because it was cool, right? But that's, again, what's yeah. what I'm saying. It doesn't make <laughs> sense, but it's cool. Um, how did Aki know to be there to pick him up? Um, why did number 11 go to such elaborate lengths to kill Bond? I mean, you know, the old joke is if you just shoot Bond in the head, you solve the problem. But she goes, I don't think there's any other villain in any other Bond movie that goes to such great lengths to not kill him when she's trying to kill him. You know what I mean? She like makes it so complicated that it's, you know, yeah. I mean, yes, I'm going to go escape with you. Oh, look, we're in this airplane. Oh, no, I'm jumping out of the airplane. I, what, what was all that? I just, it was cool, but I don't know. And then I, I've always just kind of wondered how it came to be in Japan. It, it was almost like, um, you know, like you were saying, the book was set in Japan, so they decided to set this in Japan. And once they decided it would be in Japan, then they go ahead and come up with the, with the, with the plot. But it, it seemed more like they would have set the base like in China and start like a three-way war or something. Nobody was ever going to go to war with Japan. I get having Osada involved is the only thing I can think of that makes any sense. Well, I always took it that the, uh, the two Oriental gentlemen talking to Blofeld were the Chinese who'd hired Spectre to start the war. 
Yeah. And they were doing it from Japan, so China wouldn't be implicated okay. if they got found out. That's that, that's, the that's, most the logical, that's the most logical thing of the whole movie, then, if that actually is true. I think <laughs> maybe we're giving it more credit than it deserves. All right, do you have any unanswered questions? Oh, I have a couple. So we actually just touched on one, Bond getting in the space capsule. What was his plan? Why did he do that? There was two trained astronauts there. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting was, attacked by little Nelly again. It's, but, yeah, ah, I can see that. Dang you! <laughs> there was two... Tra- there was there was actually four trained no three trained astronauts oh I've only anyway there was a bunch of tra- you know at least yeah. two trained astronauts or a trained astronaut or a cosmonaut there that could have taken the place and maybe know how to sabotage a spaceship um, right why did he put himself instead of sending why did he put himself in that place uh, yeah, yeah. That, that made no sense what was his plan and you talked about number eleven so when Blofeld says you should have killed Bond. Mm-hmm. She says, but he's dead. It was in all the newspapers. Mm-hmm. But all the newspapers had that huge, great big photograph of him by his obituary, yet she hadn't recognized him. <laughs> but she clearly read all the papers because she says later that she... Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I guess she thought, well, this guy looks just like James Bond, but James Bond is dead. It was in all the papers, so this must not be him. This must be some <laughs> guy that looks just like him. Yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, Osato, or Osata didn't know it was Bond either. Right. right, and the whole thing that we only know one person who uses a gun like this. Really? In the whole world, you only know one person that uses the Walter I, BBK. I, and, well, and, and you know, what that did was that made me think back to M basically forcing Bond to take that gun. gun and I'm thinking, yeah. does that mean that he's the only double O agent that, they, that, that M forced to take that gun? Is he like, because he makes this whole production in Doctor Know about you have to have this gun because the gun you've been using sucks. Does it, does Double O Eight come in? He's like, oh, I'll use whatever you like. You know, I'm just giving Bond a hard time. He probably thinks I. Well, he, Bond couple, probably thinks I have to. He has to actually use that gun. Luckily, well, then there's later movies where you get to like Goldeneye when it's like, oh, I only know three people who use one of those, and I killed two of them. Um, Line and then there's another one I can't remember which movie it is when somebody says, "Oh, the standard standard issue of the British Secret Service." Um. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah. yeah, continuity, folks. Yeah. Continuity. I'm going to do one more continuity thing since we just did from Russia with Love a couple of episodes ago. Remember from 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 Russia with Love, where they're listening to the tape and he says there was that time that Em and I were in Tokyo and he yes. turns it off. And I then in this, I thought um, about that. Yep. Yeah, money, pennies. Uh, no, sorry. Taiki Tanakis, or Henderson, sorry, says to him, have you been to Japan before? And he's like, no. He, no he's, he's, he says, no, never. I mean, never. he's definitive about it. Never. Yeah. yeah. I thought about yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, and three, two or three films earlier, he said he, he and them had been in Tokyo doing strange things with whatever. Yeah, yeah no kidding. That's right. And so, he said, well, I'll turn it off here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. That's, uh, did you also notice that uh, Bond called... Money Penny 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 yes yeah what was that I don't know I've never he never does that again he didn't never do it before never does it N- nope huh. that's strange okay well all unanswered questions I, and there's there's the perpetual unanswered question that we're never going to answer to where does Spectre find thugs and goons who are willing to fight to the death for their yeah. probably slightly above minimum wage paycheck. I always say that they must have a good dental plan. That's got to be the benefits. It's got to be the benefits, Alan. Got to be. And you get you get free colored overalls. <laughs> you do. That's right. Depending color coded. Yeah. 
Oh boy! All right. Uh, next up category is locations. What do you What do you think about locations in this movie? Um, well, I'll be completely honest. I love Japan. Um, having been been lucky enough to go there um, and have sort of family over there, so I love Japan. Um, but I I think one of the things this movie is one of the reasons that I fell in love with Japan and Japanese culture because it was really the first time that I saw it mm-hmm. uh, was on on the big screen on this movie or on TV on this movie. So in this movie. Um, so, you know, at the time, 67, it was still a relatively unknown country and culture. I know that, you know, there'd been occupation and stuff after the war and stuff. But I think to the general audience, particularly the, the British general audience, um, and don't forget at this time, these were still very much British films. I know they were big internationally, but they were still very much a British production. I think um, it was really a great travelogue. It was, um, you know, uh, it was exotic, it great, it a great insight into a totally different world. Um, and I think it was done with respect and the best of intentions. I know there's some things we'll talk about later. Um, but I think it, uh, and, and the fact that they made an effort to cast Japanese actors in all the major supporting roles, I think was actually really cool as well. That's true. Yeah. Uh, Which is um, unusual for that time too. It, it, yeah, very much. Yeah. 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 So uh, for me, it's a nine out of 10 on locations. So. Okay. Um, I gave it a five and I said, I understand that it was a big deal back then, but you know, for now it's just, and I'm probably being a double standard cause I was given the plot a back then rating and I'm giving the locations a now rating, but it's, I mean, you know, Japan's Japan, but I mean, I've, I've just, you know, I've seen Shogun a million times and I've seen other things. And so, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess, I guess it's like, it's the only location we get to. And I always, I always like when a Bond movie takes you to like three different places. You know, so it, it, there's usually like a European place and like a South American place and then somewhere else. And in this one, we just kind of got Japan. So, but that's fine. See, I, I like the fact that it didn't move around because the story was all driven in Japan, set in Japan. It didn't move around for the sake of moving around. It was. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. A bit like Thunderball, you know, it, it was contained or even Dr. No. It was cont- yeah. Well, actually, from Russia with love. Thinking about it, all the movies up until that point are pretty much. Yeah, set in, in in one location. So that's true. You know what? This makes me think that I haven't thought before too, is if there's one Bond movie, and we've talked about this in other contexts, I know, but if there's one Bond movie that I would like to see remade. Well, like, I mean, all right, let me back up. Usually, when we talk about remaking a Bond movie, usually the context that we mean it in is to make it more like the book, right? We talk about Moonraker, which we could make remake yeah. Moonraker, make it more. And I, I get that. This is a Bond movie that I would like to see a remake of this movie. I would like them to just sort the script out to where it makes sense, but keep it mostly in Japan and just just kind of sort it out a little bit. You know, I would, I would like a new version of this movie, kind of like Casino Royale, modernized, but with the same, you know, I think you could do it. I think you could do a movie where Bond goes to Japan, works with the Japanese Secret Service and their main agent, and the, and the women, and goes after a big villain that's hiding out in Japan. I think you could make a, a great movie using the bones of this script that wouldn't have to be like the book. Do that, too. That's fine. But I think it would be really... I, this is I, To me, this is the Eon Bond that most I'd like to see remade a, as a modern movie. Yeah, I like that. I mean, you can argue that it actually was remade because that's what The Spy Who Loved Me is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Same, it's the same director basically revisiting the same formula and it is. updating it. Um, but uh, no, I get actually a modern a modern Bond or contemporary Bond set in contemporary Japan. 
I think would be really cool. I mean, they sort of did that in the Dynamite comics with the Tiger Tanaka Felix mm. Leiter uh, miniseries, um, which was also very cool. Um, but uh, yeah, that I, I think that would be a good a good project having something set in modern day Japan. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, our next stop is the villains, and this is the main villain. We have the henchman coming up next. So, what did you make of the main villain in this? The famous, famous main villain. Um, he's very, he's iconic. Uh, it is probably the iconic mm-hmm. representation of Blofeld. Um, I know Donald Pleasance was a last-minute stand-in. Um, was brought in because the other guy they'd already done several weeks worth of filming, and it just wasn't working out. So they brought in Donald Pleasance at the last minute. Um, without this version of Blofeld, we probably would never have had Doctor Evil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He has a huge impact on popular culture. He tends to be what people think about when they think about a Bond villain. But for me, I I don't know. His squeaky voice, um, <laughs> he doesn't really carry any real menace. Um, he's not a doer. He's a delegator. You know, he runs away rather than confronting Bond. Um, I don't know. He's short time on screen. He's fun. He has one of the most iconic villain introductions, but... I don't know. I just don't get any sense of menace out of him. He just comes over as an, an administrator and not... A Belgian administrator. <laughs> a Belgian, yeah. Which is like um, the, the the epitome of administrators, right? Yeah. a Belgian administrator. So he, he, uh, as much as I love Donald Pleasance as an actor, and it is the iconic look for Blofeld, um, he only gets a four out of ten from me. Man, this is like on the Babylon 5 show the other night when... Andy gave the greatest episode pairing in history of three, and I'm just like, um, yeah, I gave this a ten because it's freaking Donald. It's Donald Pleasance's Blofeld. I don't, I don't have to explain anything. That's this is. Where no, I get go. that. I get it. It is, it is iconic, but uh, I don't know. Just- I, you know, the the thing that's funny to me about it is, for all that I can acknowledge that he is the he is the guy, I saw. As a kid, talking about those Sunday night movies on ABC, I saw Diamonds Are Forever more often than I saw this movie by far. It was on like every other week. Mm-hmm. And um, so the 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 actor that plays Henderson in this movie plays Blofeld in it. And for yeah, the, Charles, Charles Gray, yeah. Charles Gray. For the longest time, Charles Gray was my Blofeld. I really like him as Blofeld. I think he's awesome as Blofeld. He's a, he's like a William F. Buckley of villains in that movie. He's fantastic. And and so I had to kind of re-wrap my brain around a different iconic Blofeld when I started comparing the two. But but yeah, this is the one that becomes the the Dr. Evil character. This is the one that kind of goes down in history. People dismiss unfortunately the Charles Gray performance which was so powerful to me when I was a little kid so I'm I'll give him a good grade too when we get to that one but I this is the 10 for me and 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 um and I and I I really have Telly Savalas last of the three honestly and I know that that's I know that objectively if you came to it today and watched him had never seen any of them before he would probably be first and and Charles Gray would be last I know but that's not how it happened with me and so it is. What you it almost is. well. I'm slightly different. For me, it's Telly Savalas, Charles Gray, and then Donald Pleasance is okay. the weakest of the three. So. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what. So I have a ten. Ten for the villain. Yep. What about the henchmen? So we have Hans. Yeah. Do we? Kind of. I guess. Yeah. Kind of. Prototype. Okay. Silent. I mean, it's the first big 
of that prototype, the big blonde. That's that's true. Silent. He's the first one of that. Uh, but he doesn't do much beyond feed the fish. Um, <laughs> Literally. Both 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 uh, <laughs> both at lunchtime and then more on, later on. Literally. Um, <laughs> the other henchman, I guess, maybe Osado could be a henchman. And and eleven. Well, I had her under the Bond girls, but okay. Well, she's both. I mean, they're Bond yeah, yeah. girls. Some, sometimes the Bond girl is the yeah. is the henchwoman, and in one case, yeah. the villain. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the only other one I had on my list was the Rock's grandfather. Um, yes, is the the couch battle. The, the couch battle, the great fight scene. For me, he was the best henchman. Um, oh, because yes. it was the only time that Bond actually looked like he was gonna lose so um, <laughs> that's true so re- really they they got they got one mark each so three out of ten for me for henchmen this was not a strong movie for villains and henchmen yeah no i said a three as well because and i'm going to mention something about the re- about 11 in the next category but yeah the couch battle gave it a three everybody else didn't contribute anything really because <laughs> I, I hadn't i hadn't considered the fact that the big dude in this movie is like the first big dude and when you put it that way, he's kind of the progenitor of Jaws, and uh, what's the guy's name in "You Only Live uh, for Tomorrow Never Dies"? The big Stamper. one, Stamper. Stamper. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's kind of the beginning of that, and, and sort of Necros in um, yeah, ne- yeah, Living Daylights, and yeah, yeah. It, it'll yeah. come up and come up. So we haven't had a. I guess the closest we've come to that kind of a character recently was Inspector with. Um, uh, Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, but he was barely in it. Yeah, yeah. He was really wasted da- in that Dave movie. Batusa, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, so we both gave it a three. All right, the Bond yeah. Girls. Oh, we agreed on something. Wait. We did. All right, that's cool. <laughs> Bond Girls. Uh, okay, so we got the three. So there's the famous anecdote that um, Roald Dahl often said in interviews that when he was hired, he was given the formula there has to be three Bond Girls, uh, you know, and... Um, Two of them, you know, have to die, and he has to end up with one of them. You know, one's one, one's an ally, one's a villainess, but they both die, and then he ends up with the third one, and that's what he wrote into the script. Um, so, it, yeah, it sort of comes across. Uh, it's very interesting. I um, let's talk about Miss Brank, yeah, Karen Dore, number eleven, um, mm-hmm. to start with. Is she sort of comes under the henchman too, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, <laughs> she is um, to me. She's a Fiona Volpe two Yes, that's exactly what I was saying. She's just like the lady, and I, I was, I was but, confused. But nowhere near as effective. So right, no, no, and pays uh, the price for that fact too, very quickly. Yeah, so there's no, never really any sense of menace with her. I don't think. No, because she's just uh, all over the place. At least, at yeah. least with Fiona Volpe, you pretty much knew what she was about, and she could be graceful and about it, or sexy about it, or yeah. she could be hard. This lady just kind of bounces around from one dialogue line to the next. And, you know, oh, wait, no, she's with Bond. No, she's not with Bond. Oh, she is with Bond. No, she's not with Bond. You know what I mean? She just, yeah. there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. She's just all over the place. No. So. And, and not uh, in it that much to be worth it. No, not really. I mean, you could take her out of the movie and it wouldn't really impact the plot. No. Not at no. all. So, what plot there is, but it still wouldn't impact <laughs> But that still uh, leaves Aki and Kissy. Right. So let's talk about Aki. Um, she's a great, yeah, she, she, um, a lovely looking lady. Great action hero. Um, she has her own agency. She's tough. She's resourceful. Um, the and thing cool with me car. that gets about, 
cool car, yeah, um, is that her death is very tragic. Yes. And then it's completely ignored. It's like Bond never even acknowledges it, you know? It's like, if you think about some of the early ones with like Paula in Thunderball, mm. that drives a little bit of revenge that he mm. wants for her death. Um, you know, that generally there's, in memory, it would be huge scenes, but there's usually some acknowledgement. There's yeah. nothing here. It's like he gets up the next morning. It's like, oh well, I'm off to Ninja Training Camp now. Um, yeah, I think I think that they what that they really actually. Me. I think what they did is like he he says, you know, she's dead, and Bond says we have to go. We have to do something about this now. And Tiger says, you have two more days of training, and then we'll do it. And that's pretty much the right. whole conversation about it. And, and then that's she's it. never mentioned. She's, again. Ne- she's never mentioned again. Never mentioned nothing. again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I want to. Rally around Kissy. Poor old Kissy, Mia Hammer. Um, I think she is the most underrated Bond girl in the movie. A lot of people just dismiss it because she's not Aki. Um, but actually, if you think about it, she's the one who saves the day. She, you know, she's the one who tells Bond about what's going on. She's the one who, who get, takes them to, you know, find things out. She climbs the mountain with him, finds the volcano layer. And then while he's fussing around getting captured... <laughs> She, she in the dark, goes. runs back down the mountain, swims across the bay, evades Spectre helicopters, yeah. gets the ninjas, comes back across the bay, back up the mountain and into the crater, all in the space. I think I worked it out when we did the show, the other show. It was all in the space of like three hours. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then she abseils down into the, into the volcano and actually saves Bond's life when she shoots and yeah, sh- with a sword. Shoots a guy with, yes. And people just dismiss it because, and the worst thing is, the worst thing is, they never, ever acknowledge her name in the movie. She's never referred to by name in the movie. She never is, you're right. I know, it's terrible. So, you're absolutely right. I, I am all for, I'm, I'm firmly in, I know lots of people love Aki, but I am firmly in Camp Kissy Suzuki. No, her name isn't Kissy Suzuki in the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, she, she does. She does so much, and I think she's actually the hero of this movie. So yeah, I'll get no, off my, I'll get off my kiss, kissy soapbox now. It's it's hard to deny, yeah. And she does half of that wearing a little tiny bikini, so she's having to run right, through rocks yeah. with no protection and stuff, and barely, yeah, yeah, almost gets shot. Um, yeah, and she now, and she doesn't fall for Bond's charms either. She no. actually puts him in his place. She does, so. and um, yeah, that's funny. He's all grumpy. He's like, well, I won't be needing these oysters then. Um, you know, and the, and another thing they do a disservice to her is that she does all that action stuff, and yet when she's down in the bottom of the volcano base with Tiger, every time they get into cover, she she crouches behind him like she's scared. And I'm like, yeah. why are you doing that? You've done all this brave stuff. Now you're going to hide behind him and act like you're scared? Come on. You need to... I know that's the director saying, all right, couch back there like he's protecting you or something, you know. And I'm just thinking... He, she, he should be Tiger. Should be crouching behind her. She's the one kicking butt out here. What's Tiger done? You know. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I agree with you 100. percent 100. percent But I'm not going to take anything so, away from Aki too, though. She was fantastic too. Oh yeah, she was. But it's I don't know. It's just it's just like, and I know they switched them in casting. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they were originally cast, they were cast the other way around. Yeah. Uh, but Mia Hammer's English. Uh, she was having problems with her English, so they gave her the they gave her the the part with fewer lines of dialogue um but i think she still kicked ass even she didn't speak as much mm-hmm. uh, but aki was great um 
and she had she had a real chemistry with uh, with Sean Connery too. I think um, so. Um, so I gave them um, eight out of ten, and the only reason they didn't get ten out of ten is because of uh, Miss Brandt. Uh, she brought them down. Otherwise, uh, if, it was, if it was just. Uh, Aki and Kissy, they probably would have got ten, but um. and and that's what I did. I gave him a ten. I just I wasn't going to let her pull them down. I'm not letting <laughs> her pull down the average. Kind of, I kind of had her more in the in the henchman category anyway. Um, and so if I just put her up there completely, that just leaves these two really good uh, Bond ladies who kick butt as secret agents, and we don't see that again. Well, we see it on and off, but you know. It makes me think of Michelle Yeoh in, in Tomorrow Never Dies a few years later, who is my favorite yeah. Bond girl. And these two are probably right in my... They're all in my top five, so I love them all. Yeah. Um, yes. Sorry? Um, next up is Bond oh. Allies. Yeah. So we have the aforementioned Tiger Tanaka. We've already talked about him. Yep. Um, one of my favorite allies. I think he's very... Uh, you know, he's cool. He's intelligent. He's commanding. Um, he's a tutor for Bond in both Japanese culture and he has a school of ninjas. I mean, anybody who has his own school of ninjas. Um, yeah. Um, I will say though, him suggesting that the massage girls are his personal property. I thought was a bit <laughs> off. Always has, has well, been, um, there's some stuff. There's a lot more than that in this movie that we can talk yeah, about. Yeah, there is, right? which we'll get to. Um, but that's one of the few lines that of tigers that I'm like, um, yeah. but yeah, he's a top. I would have liked to have seen more of him. Yes. Um, oh, like there's said. there's like three movies we never got that I've desperately wanted to see: the Tiger Tanaka movie, and the um, the Michelle Yeoh Chinese agent movie. And yeah. uh, I mean, I would love to go back and see like a an, an early version of Kirim Bay when he was younger, doing right. cool stuff in in Istanbul. Those would all be great movies that we would uh, would kill to see. But yeah, I, I, I would have just liked to have seen Tiger Tanaka turn up in some of the other Bond movies. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, we we got enough Felixes. We could, I think, and Felix was only in fifty percent of the movies. We could have had Tiger in a couple, I think, somehow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for me, he's top. And we also mentioned him earlier, um, Charles Gray as Henderson. <laughs> I want to know more about that character. I, I want know, to know what like it is it. he gets up. What, is, what is it that he gets up to? I would have in the book. He's Bond's guide to Tokyo life. He's the one who takes Bond around Tokyo and introduces him to all this. I would have loved to have seen more of that in the movie. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen Henderson teaching Bond about working with the Japanese and being in Tokyo and then being together and learn, learn more about you know his spying and stuff like that that he does. Um, I think he's Australian in the book, um, which they didn't really play with here. But um, yeah, that's a character I wanted to know a lot more about than his whatever it was, two, three minutes on screen. How cool would it have been in Tomorrow Never Dies, maybe, for Ken Watanabe to be Tiger Tanaka teaming up with Pierce Brosnan? Yeah. <laughs> and Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. Holy. Even if it was just a cameo, even if he just was on. Oh. Yeah. Ken Watanabe yeah. comes out, Bond, you know, oh. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm dying just thinking about how cool that would have been. He would have been perfect. Yeah. Oh. So they got a they got a 9 out of 10 for me. But, but Okay. And and Tiger gets a 10 all by himself because he is the Tiger King. Um, so we've got some vehicles in this movie. I'm curious, because you're the vehicle expert, break down for us the vehicles in this movie and where you rank them. 
Aha, uh -huh, there's little Nelly. As opposed to the fly that I have named little Nelly that's attacking me currently. Yeah, that was very visual, but I actually got my model in little Nelly and flew it across the screen. <laughs> He's um, it, yes. So we have little Nelly. We have the Toyota 2000 convertible. Mm -hmm. uh, we have little Nelly. And did I mention we have little Nelly? Yeah, that's um, pretty. And some helicopters. That's about it, right? It's 10 out of 10. Uh, <laughs> you, there was something you said about the white convertible. They had to change something about it. It wasn't a production model or something. It wasn't big enough. Oh, yeah. This is a fairly well told story. But the, the, uh, they had two convertibles for the, um, for the movie because uh, basically Sean Connery was too tall for the production vehicle, which was a coupe, and he couldn't get in. Um, his head, you can actually see it in some of the shots. His head is actually above the roof line, so they made uh, two convertibles, um, <laughs> which actually also made it easier for filming, and they could do shots like you know more of the interior shots and yeah. the hero shots. Yeah. But uh, yes, it's, it's a it's a vehicle built especially for the movie. Yes, it looks so good. I'm surprised they didn't they didn't make them like that. It's a great it's yeah a cool little car. It it does does look very cool. Yeah. It 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 just it looks really good with Aki. It's like the perfect car for her. I think she doesn't need anything yeah, it bigger is right, or bulkier. Yeah. It's just sleek and yeah, that's cool. Um, if, if, I'm, if I'm right, Bond does not drive a car in this movie. He is yeah. driven. He does not drive. I don't so think he does. Yeah. Is it the only one? No, I think there's a I think there's a, another one where he doesn't drive. But yeah, he may not drive anything in Moonraker. I know I that don't. he doesn't shoot a gun. In Moonraker, but I don't know if he drives anything in Moonraker. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, and then there's the spaceship. Oh yeah. Sorry, I just got distracted by typing "little Nelly, little Nelly, little Nelly" across <laughs> my notes. Yeah, but there are the rocks. Yeah, I mean, there's the spaceships. I mean, there's the you know the genuine ones, the the Gemini uh, mm -hmm. capsule, which is very cool, mm -hmm. uh, with the whole space walk. And then you've got the completely out of it Flash Gordon, Elon Musk. Spectre yeah. rocket, um, <laughs> which, when you think about it, is really ahead of its time. Um, oh yeah, I mean there were other there were there were other shows around that had you know rockets that that did that science fiction shows and stuff. So it wasn't that sort of leading edge thinking. But when you actually think about where we are now, we're only just now getting to the point of where that's even practical. Um, it, it's very interesting. So yeah, um, do you know the story of how the, the 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 lunar module that lands on the surface of the moon? Um, was designed by Werner von Braun in Huntsville. Yep. Yeah. And he had it take off again, the whole thing, back up yeah. to the to the service module. And somebody else said, why does the whole thing have to take off again? Doesn't that just make it extra weight? And that's why they leave the bottom half sitting on the surface of the moon, is it just saves, you don't need to take all that up into orbit. No, so you need less propellant because you, yeah. Right. Yeah. Less mass, yeah. 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 Um, do we have any gadgets in this movie, and do we count little Nelly as a well, what, what was your What was your oh. score for the vehicles? Ah, oh, nine, nine. Yeah, just I, I love okay. them too. Little Nelly's awesome. The little car, so that's fine. The okay. helicopter with a magnet. <laughs> Don't want to forget that. Yeah, one. that's another un unanswered question, by the way. Where was the How was Bond able to see the yeah, helicopter was, from above on the screen? Where was the, where TV was the camera? camera? Yes. Where was that TV camera? It was yeah. God Unless Almighty. They had another helicopter. Yeah. That followed that helicopter. <laughs> they, so. That's yeah, yeah. They they always send out a press helicopter with their magnet <laughs> helicopter. It's, they're very efficient that way. So gadgets was little Nelly the only gadget, and was little Nelly a gadget? I guess she is, but for me she's a vehicle, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I didn't count her as a gadget. So the only other gadget I could think about was the rocket firing guns and the rocket firing cigarette. 
Oh, the, yeah. Oh, the cigarette has to be. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Yeah, that's up there with the with the wrist thing in Moonraker that shoots the dart. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. for sure. I and that and that is kind of the gadget that saves the day for him pretty much at the end by taking out the guard. Yeah. You know. So yeah, that's. Yeah, so I gave it a ten because I think, and the other thing I think we said this when we did the show, but those rocket firing guns were real. It was they, they were actually supplied by a Japanese arms manufacturer who was trying to sell them and wanted to use the bomb thing as advertising. So not the cigarette, but the guns in the the Japanese Secret Service Q lab when he first shows them, that's actually a real thing that they did actually have jet propelled rocket firing. How be dang? Guns. All right, I, all right. But, am I allowed to but, change my number because I didn't remember something? Or are you already? Yeah, yeah, go on, go on. If you've already locked it in, I'll just go with it. But I'd forgotten about the bullets, so I'll 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 bump it up to a five because you've got okay. you got little Nelly. I forgot about the cigarette and I forgot about the bullets, so that's not a three. That's a five. Okay. Well, I gave it an eight. So okay. okay. All right. Now Which take us takes yes. us to the pre credits sequence. Yes, pre credit sequence. Uh, little usually they're little movies into themselves. This one was um, Bond in bed with the Chinese lady who later shows up as the old grandma on Noble House. A Noble House reference. It would not <laughs> show without a Noble House reference, but she does. She turns up as the old ama in Noble House. I probably mentioned that in the original review. And, um, and and she, she turns up at, turns up at the uh, Texas uh, poker table in casino. Yes, Royale. holy cow! Um, so she gets out of bed. He talks about what Chinese girls taste like, and then she pushes a button, and he's riddled with bullets. And there's a burial at sea, and all that. All I, again, this isn't one of those elaborate movie things, rather than logical things. You know, I mean, did they did they enact all this? Who was this to convince? I mean, why? You know, who, who was supposed to see guys run in and shoot machine guns and run back out? Why couldn't they have just taken him out in a stretcher with a sheet over him and said, "Oh, she killed him" or something? You know what I mean? I don't, I don't understand. Why, I mean, who was in with it? Were they were they were the two police officers in on it? Were the yeah. guys who had the machine guns in on it? I know. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just strange. And then they go to the whole nine yards of dropping him in the water, in the wrapped up in the you know the the zip up canvas yeah, bag yeah. or whatever, and giving him an oxygen thing. And he doesn't move. Did you notice they don't? He doesn't move or open his eyes until they take the oxygen thing out of his mouth. Yeah. Like he's like he's playing dead. Like they don't want the yeah. audience to know he's still alive. I mean, I'm like. We get it, you know. You don't have to sit there, <laughs> but uh, it was just well, strange. I don't know if you re- if you remember early on. I, I said that some of the research I'd found was that I can't remember which one of the producers. I think it was Saltzman. But anyway, they wanted they liked the idea of opening the movie by making the audience think that James Bond is dead. So that's why you got it in from Russia with Love. You got the JBs on the ca- JB on the casket in uh, Thunderball, and you've got it here again. You've got another Bond is dead opening sequence. Um, which is, you know, nobody, yeah, nobody's going to go for it. I, I don't understand why they did it. Um, and if the idea was to trick Bond's enemies into thinking he was dead, they could have just staged a burial where they just threw an empty shroud in the water That's and what left I'm it saying. and printed the obituary in the paper. They didn't need all the other theatrical I know, stuff. the whole. That's what I'm saying. They did this whole production, yeah. and I just don't quite understand why that was all necessary, who they were trying to fool. 
Uh, and it, as a pre-credit sequence, it doesn't stand up as a mini th- movie on its own like right. the others do. Yeah. But the really cool part of the pre-credit sequence is the very opening part, which is actually the space is the capsule in space. Oh right! And the rocket opening up behind it, and the poor guy getting clipped and floating off into that's the, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yes, that is good. Yeah. So, um, so it it it's it's cool. Um, from the opening space sequence, but the rest of it doesn't really make sense. So I gave it a, a seven, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I, I said just it's just like a lot of other things in this movie. It it ha- stuff happens, stuff is kind of cool that happens, and yet it's hard to understand exactly why it happens the way it happens. And so I gave it a five, just kind of down the middle because on the one hand I'm like, well, other hand I'm like, yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, yeah, so, uh, but they, you're right. I hadn't thought about just how many times they try to fake us out that he's dead. And then this was the last one he did, you know, that Connery did for a while. So, right. Oh, and I know what I was going to say is it also reminds me of the beginning of Star Trek 2. Because with Star Trek 2, word had gotten out during they were, during, while they were filming the movie that Spock was going to die. And so they actually added that opening part in just to fool the audience into thinking that this was when Spock dies. Oh, but he's okay. And then have him die later. I thought that was pretty smart. Yeah. 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 They could have done that with uh, no time to die. Like have a (laughs) thing at the very beginning where you think that Daniel Craig is dead and then he's alive and you're like, oh, he doesn't actually die. And then you get the end of the movie. See, fake, do the double fake. So yeah. Anyway. All right, so I gave it a five. It's not my favorite pre-credit sequence by any means. Um, but then the credit sequence itself, the opening credits. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this one. It's a simple, classic opener. Um, I think it sets the mood, the place of the movie. But I don't think it's anything particularly special. Um, so, I, I, again, I give it a, a seven. It was sort of a, eh, okay, it works, but... Well, part of it has to do with the music, part of it has to do with the, the, the scenery and the backgrounds that fit in with the movie, and part of it has to do with some of the little graphic things, and part of it has to do with it doesn't have naked women with neon stuff painted on their legs. No, it does stuff. not. <laughs> Thank you, Maurice Bender, if he was responsible, for giving us a break and classing things up for one movie. I gave this one a 10. I think it's perfect. I wish they were all like this. And that's going to get us to the music in the next one. So, but yeah, I, that's I, I gave that a ten. It's the perfect opening sequence with the perfect music. All right, cool. The theme uh, song. Theme song. Um, <laughs> I think mean, Nancy Sinatra was saved by John Barry's editing her thirty-two takes together to actually make it into a decent theme. Well, song. it worked. Um, it's it's good. It's enjoyable, but it's not one of the classic ones. It's it's one I sort of come along to, but not. There's, there's, there's quite a few that I like a lot more than this one, so it's sort of middle of the pack for me. Uh, I think I give it a six. So. Well, all I can tell you is that you're wrong, and this is the best <laughs> one. I, this I is, gathered that one. <laughs> this is the number one Bond theme song for me. I listen to it more often than any of the others. I got something to say about that on the next category. And it is perfect. It makes the movie better. It makes the opening credits better. And I love it, love it, love it. And it gets a 10. Boom. Okay. I'd already typed in 10. The way you were going, I knew what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets us to the score. So the other music in, in the movie. So I'm curious what you think about that. I love this soundtrack. Um, this is one of John Barry's. It's not John Barry's. It's not my 
personal top of the pick for John Barry, but it's probably my number two, three, maybe, John Barry score. Um, you've got Capsule in Space, music cue, mm. which is brilliant. The Fight of the Kobe Ducks, music yes. cue, which is oh. awesome. Um, both classic. It just sounds like Japan. There was something I, I was in the car today, and I just caught like two or three bars of it on something, and I'm like, I immediately knew what movie it was. Just sets the mood. So, yeah, this is a 9 out of 10 for me. It's a top three, John Barry. Out of his 11, this is one of my top threes. Top three. This is so. the only Bond where I actually bought the entire score and the bonuses and everything and have it on my phone. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. I think that in addition to very effectively weaving the theme tune which yeah. we the melody, I, the melody through it yeah. yes yeah. we you and i have talked about this many times that a, a good bond finds a way to weave the main melody into the stu- into the whole movie and they do that perfectly but like you say there's the there's that um there's that totally unique that uh, when the when the rocket is coming in wah, 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 that's fantastic that um they use the um they use the the uh, the Bond theme with little Nelly that pops up again in Moonraker and a couple other places. That's yeah. effective, and um, and then the Kobe Docs track. Nothing sounds like that Kobe Docs. I can play that one over and over, and I just like, yep, I know exactly. It's Bond running on the roof of that building, you know, fighting everybody yeah. in sight. It's so cool. Uh, so yeah, this one absolutely gets a ten. This is the best by far. Lots of tens from me. You'd think this was one of my favorite Bond movies. How about that? Yeah, I'm getting that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't have the numbers add up to like four out of ten when it's my favorite <laughs> movie, can I? So, but no, this is all. These are the reasons why it's my favorite movie. I've ta- I've acknowledged the weaknesses. I've acknowledged the weaknesses, but these strengths, when it gets it right, it really gets it right. It nails a lot of iconic moments. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. We are uh, one of our favorite categories. We do is what's aged the best and what's aged the worst, and that's. That's going to be more difficult as we get closer to the present, but still when we're back in the 60s, it's not too hard, right? So what did you feel like has aged the best in this movie? Um, I think the Volcano set, it's still damn impressive. Yes. No so matter how many times you see this movie, um, it's just so iconic. and uh, It holds up well. Um, particularly when you see them, like, move, you know, you see a full-size helicopter come in or they move the spaceship and it starts to move off the launch pad. I know, and then they do the jump cut to the really bad back projection of the model. But, you know, you actually see it moving um, all the people in it, just the size and scale mm-hmm. of it. Um, I, I don't think you can beat that volcano base. It, it really just... No, it's... And I don't think there's ever been a layer in another Bond movie or any other movie that's really ever... Um, approached it in terms of just it's, impressive jaw-dropping scale and it's got an evil feel. monorail for crying out loud yeah well others have got evil monorails in it but they, i don't know it just um it just works so well um so i think that holds up the other thing i think that actually holds up really well is the mystery aspect of it um yeah because you again we're watching bond being a detective again because at the beginning when he goes to japan he doesn't actually know what he's looking for no he just follows the sequence of clues. Now, so obviously, sometimes they're like literally thrown in his face, faint. <laughs> um, and other times, you get a little bit of an exposition dump. But he is following the clues, and it sort of it, you find out things as he finds out, and it builds and builds. So I actually think those are the two things for me. Watching again the other night that really impressed me was the was the mystery aspect, and again, the volcano um, set is just amazing. 
Yeah, and we actually get him going undercover as somebody, which he does every now and then. He doesn't do it too often, but he does it every, right. you know occasionally. He's been like a diamond merchant or whatever. He's been the right. genealogy guy, you know. And here he's like a monosodium glutamate executive Sales, or salesman. Yeah, chemical chemical guy. Yeah, which is yeah, funny. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, I like that a lot. So no, I agree. I think that. Um, yeah, the, the the those I think you hit the nail on the head though. Those are the two things that really have held up well is is kind of what he's trying to do, figuring it all out, and um, and of course I'll always I'll always admit that if the villains if if Blofeld hadn't sent his helicopters to attack Little Nelly, he'd have got away with it. He'd have got away with everything. <laughs> Yeah. What? Why do you hide your base and then send out a wave of helicopters when it's working? Bond had yeah. just said, he had just said, there's nothing to see here. And then here come the bad guy. And he's like, oh, I guess there is something to see here. Mm, you know, so yeah, that was, uh, but, um, but yeah, I, and, and, uh, and the base, the shutters with the villains and the whole nice lair behind it, kind of like Dr. Nose cave, yeah. you know, whatever. And the, um, the 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 moving lake lid that doesn't get enough attention I don't think which is really yeah, cool yeah all yeah. of that stuff I mean I like that Bond and and Kissy are right up on top of the water quote unquote and they still don't realize it's not water until he throws a rock throws a rock yeah, bang 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 yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that must be some really good looking camouflage man that's cool um all right we got to say it what has aged the worst and I don't know where to begin ah <laughs> uh, the yeah it's like I said earlier on, this movie in some ways is very respectful and inclusive, and then in other mm. ways it is just horribly racist. Yes. Um, it has one foot in each of those, I think. It's trying so yeah. hard, but it's still – it is what it is, you know. Yeah, unfortunately I think that's a product of its time. Um, yeah. and, but it, was, it wasn't – it's not right now, and it wasn't right then either. Um, particularly the, the turning Japanese sequence. Because uh, um, at, at any point that made – one, it's – disrespectful and horrible but two it makes no sense in terms of the plot um because you know they spend all this time doing this cosmetic surgery and basically the next morning he's just brushed his hair forward and that's it i mean they they sort of abandon it within the confines of the movie anyway yeah um it's never mentioned again and he obviously just refers back to looking like sean connery um so it's never carried through but the whole sequence i mentioned earlier you know the the owning the massage girls the you know uh, men come first, women come second. Even the, you know, the thing about you were talking about in the pre-title sequence, you know, why do Chinese girls taste different than other? It's like, oh, did you really need to go there? So exactly. yeah, there are there are some absolute cringeworthy moments. Um, but also for me, you mentioned it earlier on, and I, for me, one of the biggest problems I have with this movie from a technical point of view is the Helga Brandt James Bond airplane sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a combination. There are so many impressive pieces of cinematography the little Nelly sequence is a great one I, I you know I will watch that sequence over and over and over again particularly the idea of you know that him noticing it because he sees the shadow of the other helicopters on the ground and stuff coming up behind him and, and just the way that's done it's clearly clearly filmed on site it's a lot of money spent in it and then you get this really cheapy badly shot badly put together sequence which is clearly filmed over the English countryside that is not Japan no. <laughs> underneath. Um, you've got bad back projection, bad model work. Um, yeah, uh, and it makes no sense plot-wise. So for me, that whole... I, I, I tend to s- skip that whole airplane sequence. Um, 
it just makes no sense and it's just so badly done and looks cheap and nasty compared to the rest of the movie and how well the rest of the movie's made. Um, clearly done on location in Pinewood with models and shots over the English countryside. Just makes no sense to me as to why they did that. Speaking of which, has that airplane ever shown up again? Have you ever found that model of that airplane? <laughs> no, I don't think we've even looked. <laughs> <laughs> you just said, eh, just pretend that one doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah, I just wrote down for what stage the worst. I just said in all capital letters, so much misogyny, so yeah. <laughs> racism, the Japanese yeah. stuff, Jap- turning Jap- Bond Japanese stuff, the, you know, the whole thing about women should serve the man and of course the yeah, old yeah, joke yeah. that in Japan the men come first and the women if not at all um, yeah so all of that just I think goes almost without saying and you've, you've covered it pretty well and then also like I said the decision of Spectre to send up the helicopters to attack Bond I mean every time I watch it I think more and more wow this was a dumb decision that they made that they should have just left them alone so but um I mean and they, they they basically repeat it in Goldeneye when they shoot off the missile that they're flying over the hidden base and it's like there are so many times where if the basically the uh, the bad guys had just stayed quiet mm-hmm. they would have won well and it's funny <laughs> so. because one of the one of Bond's tactics is always to try to rile up the villain it's to, to make it to do something to, stupid yeah to make an error but they do their own unforced errors yeah so yeah, they don't need Bond sometimes. All right, and uh, let's see. We have the double taking pigeon. Most uh, you forgot, we forgot the best Bond moment. I'm oh, sure I had that, that one last. I've, I've always had that oh. one last. Maybe I moved it around. Okay, all right. I saved that one for last. So double taking pigeon, most cringeworthy moment award. What? Now there's plenty of nominees, as we've just said. All right. I mean, when you go back and look at what's age the worst, there's plenty of nominees. But what was the one that made you cringe like a double taking pigeon, Alan? Um, actually, it's not so much cringe, but I, I think it comes back to the the Aki thing about, like I said, the like complete disregard for her fate. Okay. Like it just cuts to the next. There's there's no like line of dialogue or anything that made me cringe, but it's it, the the more I've watched it, the more I've come to realize how badly they treated the fate of that character, and I, I hate it when we just get to that next morning training scene and it's like nothing's happened. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, I, I, I can't. I, I have to go with Bond getting the plastic surgery to look Japanese, and and to yeah. make it to make it worse, Aki oversees it. She's like there yeah. calling out instructions. I'm like, wait, where did when did she become a plastic surgeon? <laughs> What's up with that? But uh, yeah, and then it, like you said, it just then it's disregarded. It's not like he has to go back and have anything removed or undone or anything. They didn't really do anything. Apparently, I don't know. No, it's, I, no, and he, like I say, he just. Combs his hair. Next morning, combs his hair forward, and that seems to be it. You know, Mira and I have always because she's watched these movies since she was a baby, which is probably enough to get me in trouble with the uh, (laughs) (laughs) the child care associates or whatever. But but she, we always used to laugh at the face like a pig line. Every time he says, "Oh, face like a pig," we just crack up. So um, yeah, I I I know if it's interesting. I I was listening to another podcast that was talking about this movie, and they were bringing up that line and saying that that was um, Tiger Tanaka insulting Kissy, and who we hadn't seen at that point when he said the line. And I always thought, basically, I'd always read it that he said it as a wind-up to Bond, that he knew Kissy was actually pretty. Right. Oh, 100%. Was, yeah, but they seem to be taking it that he was being very insulting towards Kissy, and I'm like, no. I can read it that way. No, you couldn't look at Kissy and think anything like that. Kissy's gorgeous. No, he. Uh, it was 100% that he was just 
pulling Bond's leg, as we say. Yeah, right? he was winding him up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was all it was. Yeah. So that when he sees her, he would be like, "Oh, you know." Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he totally thought that it was going to be a. I just thought it was interesting that somebody else had read it that way, and it's like, "Yeah, oh, okay." Well, <laughs> they're they are entirely wrong, and we've established that. So. All right. <laughs> Best Bond moment. And I had a hard time. I had a hard time coming up with any one Bond moment. The one I really love um, is actually at the end of the Kobe Dalt rooftop fight mm-hmm. where he does the double flip. He flips off the walkway. Oh, yeah. Not once, but twice. Yeah, he yeah. flips down one level onto crates and then he flips down onto the... He just does that back flip. And then he gets off the things and he's walking away just doing it. Straightening his tie and straightening his cuffs, and I know then he walks around and gets hit on the head and caught. Uh, but just that, but just that bit of after that huge fight, he just does that d- double dive off those yep. um, oh, yeah, yeah. walkways. That's pretty cool, yeah. And then walks away, straightening his suit. I thought was just very cool. Good thing there wasn't a pallet full of nails or broken glass. Yeah. <laughs> instead of whatever it was, flour yeah. apparently or sand, but yeah. Right, well, there was nothing in that. Yeah, yeah air. Um, no, that's cool. I, I kind of like it, actually. I My original idea was that pretty much just when he's in the control room of the volcano base, and I and I, and I was like, well, but it's not that awesome. And then I realized, you know, the thing that I, I, I figured this out, and I'm comfortable with this, with this idea. What I figured out is that the whole scene in Blofeld's command center in the, in the volcano base, it doesn't seem as special to me as it used to. And I think that's because they basically do the whole thing over again in Diamonds Are Forever, right? When they're on the oil drilling platform at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very yeah, much. Yeah. It's, it's him and Blofeld and a girl. It's very and much. A guy, and, a, and a guy who's talking over a tunnel. Yeah. 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 It's very, very similar, right? Just within four years. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah, it kind of took some of it away. But I, you know what? I had forgotten about the Kobe Doc's roof battle, and I'm going to say that's probably the coolest Bond moment in the movie is him running around fighting all the different people as he runs through the, along the roof. I like that a whole lot. Because a lot of the other stuff that happens yeah. in this movie, stuff happens to him rather yeah. than him doing stuff. But that one, you know, because he's bailed out by Tiger or, or Kissy or Aki or whoever right. over and over and over in, these movie, in this movie. But... Uh, that's one time he actually takes a little agency and goes around and does stuff and, and, and until the very last moment is, is successful. So yeah, I'll go with that. All right, here we go. Your overall rating of this Bond film on a scale of 1 to 10. So my overall rating subjective score is a 7. Mm. Like I said, it's a top, you know. Yeah. I mean, that makes it my second favorite Connery movie. Um, and actually, my mathematical average came out at exactly 7.00 so i was <laughs> i was uh, agent zero zero on this one 7.00 and seven for my subjective so nailed wow. it wow man well my scale of one to ten on this movie is not going to match the average <laughs> but that's because i'm going to pray i'm going to preface it okay by saying yes it has a somewhat nonsensical script Yes, it's horribly sexist and misogynistic and probably racist. And no, I would not tolerate any of this in a Bond movie made after, like, 2000. But judging it for what it has always meant to me, for what it was in 1967, and for how I look at it now, it is still my favorite Bond movie. It's got a volcano base. It's got ninjas. It's got Tiger. It's got Blofeld. It gets a 10. 
Boom. Okay. So your average mathematical one was actually seven point eight three. Yep. I don't. I, which, that's that's yeah. That's about what which I, is I'm your, your high, which is your highest score of the Connery so far. So that's, wow. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say I bet the average is closer to an eight because I had some tens, but I had a few that were kind of yeah. low too. So yeah. 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 Yeah, you the, went far off an eight. So, I think yeah. the difference here is I'm willing to overlook those things that were really low because the things that are so high are so high. You know what I mean? Like if yeah, I get that. If it had some threes and fours, but also had some sevens, eights, and nines, then I'd be like, ah, it's an eight. But the the things that weren't threes or fours were like tens. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Well, any any other thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, you only live twice. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we we talked about this, but for me, this is a very conflicting movie. Um, you know, like I said, on the one hand, it's respectful and inclusive of Japanese culture, but on the other hand, as you mentioned, it's borderline racist. Um, it has strong female characters, but it's also mis- misogynistic. They kill one off without consequence. They ignore the other's contributions. Um, but it has many iconic Bond moments and some great cinema photography, but it also has some of the worst cheap, cheaply set up shots in the whole series. Yeah. Um, the plot's a mess. It doesn't make sense logistically, but it's still a fun romp. <laughs> so the, I get more conflicted about this movie each time I watch it. Like I say, it used to be my favorite. It used to be the one I'd watched the most, the one I knew almost word for word. Um, but each time I watch it, it sort of ranks down a little bit more and a little bit more. But it is still my comfort movie. It's still my James Bond blows up shit. I'm in a bad mood. I want to feel happier movie. So, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the way I was with Diamonds Are Forever. It was the one I saw the most when I was a little kid, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. And then when I came back to it a few years ago and I started watching all these movies again when I got the DVD sets, I'm like, wow, this movie doesn't hold up near as well as I thought. I thought it was one of the best ones, and it's one of the worst. That was quite a shock. So I don't know, it's kind of it's kind of similar in that way. But it is, it is again, it is 1967, and, you know, you're it's – to to, to, to to do some of the things that it does in a good way is actually kind of more surprising than anything that it does in a bad way, honestly, you know. Yeah. So if you kind of compare to what other TV shows and movies were doing at that time. So, all right. Well, that's gotten us through. You Only Live Twice. I guess um, we will reconvene next month. Oh, goodness. 1969. They're landing on the moon, Alan. There's Woodstock. And there's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. We can talk about my favorite Bond movie. <laughs> there we go. We got him back to back. That's good. All right. I guess uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, going to get out of here for another episode. Alan and Van will return. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.